Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from the Right to Read Initiative. And today I had the pleasure of speaking with Alicia Smith from the IDA Ontario. And you were one of the big people behind the whole Right to Read public inquiry. And today we're speaking about what's happening today based on this report in Ontario. This report has so much amazing information in it and I you know everybody has to thank you for what you've done to create this public inquiry and and the report because it's far-reaching it's not just for people in Ontario the recommendations are gold and yes there is room for improvement and there are some areas that were left out but Overall, this is a great starting point to take things further from the National Reading Panel's work and the stuff in Australia and the Rose Report. It actually gives those actionable steps. So thank you for joining me today, Alicia. Can you tell me a couple things about yourself so that people have a bit of a background about why you started this mission? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to speak with you. We've had so many really amazing guests on this uh, Right to Read initiative podcast, so I'm thrilled to be amongst those ranks. Um, And I did just want to clarify that uh, I cannot take credit for being like one of the big people behind the Right to Read report. Like I've certainly been working on it with a whole team of people, but it really got started before I even uh, got into dyslexia advocacy. There were already a group of people there that were starting the process moving. So I jumped into a well-oiled machine already (laughs) and just kind of ran with it. Um, But a little bit about myself. So I am, I live in a place called Tiny Ontario, which is about two hours north of Toronto. Um, I'm dyslexic myself and I am the parent of a child with dyslexia. And I um, entered the education system in Ontario. I'm not an educator. I um, brought my child into the education system in Ontario. Um, really expecting that he was going to be set up for success. You know, my husband and I, uh, knowing that I'm dyslexic and and the challenges that that presented for me when I was in school, I was really motivated to do everything I could as a parent to set my son up for success with literacy. So I had read the parenting books and magazines and, you know, I fully, we fully understood the importance of immersing him in a literacy-rich environment. And we did that and we We, you know, my husband and I would talk about articles about the importance of conversational turns and we would make sure that we were doing that and and asking him questions and speaking to him and taking him on, you know, outings and field trips and limiting screen time, all that stuff. So we felt like we had done everything we possibly could um, at home to set him up. And we also felt really confident um, in the Ontario education system because at the time that he went to school, it was sort of the mid 2000s, we, um, the climate in Ontario was that we had uh, the Liberal government was in place at the time. They had invested quite a lot of money in education. They've lowered class sizes. We had Michael Fullen as the you know, official advisor to the Minister of Education, and they were making all sorts of changes. And you know, there was international press. I remember the, the year that he started kindergarten reading in The Economist that you know, Ontario has become an education superpower. So we really went in feeling so confident that he was gonna have a great experience in school. He had really strong language skills going in. The teachers that he had were amazing. They were fantastic teachers. They were so caring. And I was in complete awe of everything that they could do. So um, even though I I 
disclosed to them about my own dyslexia and my family history. I have a nephew who's dyslexic and you know, said, please keep an eye out for these things. I really trusted that the Ontario education system, you know, 30 years after I was in it and struggled, would have figured out what they need to do so that dyslexic students can not just survive in school, but actually thrive in school. So, you know, I think when I was a student, I sort of managed to survive in school, but I definitely didn't thrive. Um, so I was really shocked when the experience of my son wasn't even surviving, like he was not surviving in school. Um, school was a huge struggle for him, um, not so much in kindergarten, but definitely by the time he got to grade one or grade two, uh, because we were really putting our faith in the system that, you know, they knew how to deal with this. But, you know, he wasn't screened and we were just continually told, well, he's a boy. He's a December baby. He's so smart and has such good language skills. You know, it's gonna click for him one day. Um, so we kind of let it go a little bit. And then by the time he was in grade three and he hadn't caught up and I could see that my daughter who was younger was already reading. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 I feel like we need to take a step back here. And so we did take him to get a psychiatric assessment. And of course found out he had dyslexia. And then that opened up this whole can of worms because on that psych ed assessment, it said, you know, Marcus would benefit from evidence-based instruction. And uh, that was just the, the mic drop moment for me. It was like, um, what have we been doing for him in this world-class education system for the last five years, if not providing him with evidence-based instruction? Um, but going through that process with my son and then seeing the gaps, and also I think having a lot of compassion for the teachers because the teachers that he had all along the way I can see how hard they were working and how frustrated they were. Like he was really frustrated, but he, they were really frustrated too. Like they were really trying very hard with the, the tools and the resources and the training that they had and they couldn't move him forward either. And so once I learned about that disconnect, I just couldn't let it go. And I've been pretty much ever since been working on full-time advocacy for system change. Well, and it's an important journey and it's one you're not alone on. You know, I'm dyslexic. I have a child with dyslexia. And again, putting faith in this system, even though giving them the information that they need and the, you know, the family history, I, I think we definitely need to make changes. And that's what hopefully we'll be talking about. I mean, one of the things that as someone with an education degree, I know that it wasn't discussed in my teacher education program. And I think we have to acknowledge that while there are amazing, great recommendations for going forward, we also have to follow those recommendations for the in-service teachers to provide the information that they didn't get because it's not fair to them, right? And you know, they're in a, a tricky spot because they received their training, they trust in their training and their trust in the skills that they've been taught. And then they get these students that are struggling and, and they're not sure they're, they've been told, okay, well just, you know, exposure, they're not being read enough at home. They're not having those conversations. It's probably too much screen time and it's not getting to that root of the problem. Right. And then, you know, the frustration that these teachers experience. And I don't know about you, but so many of the teachers that I have found that have looked further and that are supporting this right to read initiative are ones that are actually parents of dyslexics who, you know, I'm a teacher. I should be able to teach my child to read, but why can't I, why isn't this working? 
and then realizing that their training has let them down. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, when I first got involved in, um, in IDA Ontario, it was very much coming to them looking for support as a parent, right? And, um, and I, I did get some support as a parent. I got some resources. I started using um, very basic structured literacy techniques from the IDA Ontario's Helping Your Struggling Reader Workshop, uh, which is a free webinar that's online that people can access. I started doing that stuff at home with my son and I just immediately saw the difference. And his teachers saw the difference too. And, you know, I had been working with them before and they had been, they had been working with him at school. They had been doing extra guided reading. They had been doing all the things that they knew to do and it wasn't coming together. And then finally it was. Um, and then when I, I remember when I first really got involved with IDA, I ended up going to um, their conference in 2018 and I met Emily Moorhead there and she was presenting and that's exactly her experience is that she's a parent of a child with dyslexia, but she's a teacher. And I just realized her, her story was so powerful. You know, it's like, that's the, the voice that we need to really amplify because I feel like there are so many teachers like that. So the initial group of teachers, I think many of them were like Emily, but now I would say more often than not, they're no, they're no longer teachers that have dyslexic children. Like it's starting to spread um, and it's going out to all the teachers because they're seeing the success of, you know, the, the teacher next door is using these techniques now and they're seeing the success and then they're getting curious and, and they're looking. Um, but I think like one of the things that I've noticed is that there seems to be a lack of dyslexic people in education. And, uh, you know, one of the things um, that I saying that I've heard before is nothing for us without us, right? Nothing about you know, us sort of, without us. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, I feel like what's happened to dyslexic people within ed education, because education is run by educators and education is not a profession that is particularly um, welcoming or accessible, I'd say often traditionally to individuals with dyslexia. I'd love to see statistics on how many dyslexic teachers there are. Um, but I know for myself, it was never a career path that I had considered because I couldn't write words on a chalkboard. It seemed like that's what you needed to do to be a teacher. So I remember in grade three, you know, a lot of the other kids would say, oh, I'm going to be a teacher when I grow up. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I can't do that. <laughs> that's never going to happen. Right. So I feel like if there were more dyslexics within education um, or more consultation with the dyslexia community, then maybe we would have systems that were more supportive and worked better for students with dyslexia. And that's one of the things that I think the right to read has really given us is that it has really given dyslexic people a voice and the ability to have, um, have their needs understood and recognized and also to have some input into the recommendations going forward. Um, so that was one of the things that I think was so exciting and powerful about the right to read was that dyslexic people from all across the province were coming out of the woodwork and starting to tell their stories. And I think that was really empowering for them. Uh, but I think it will also help to improve the education system so that it is really um, understanding. So it is, it's with us as opposed to without us, you know. That's definitely important because it's, you know, understanding the journey and the experience. Most teachers can't remember learning how to read. And so that's why when they get their training and hear that it's a natural process and with the right exposure and everything, it makes sense because that what's happened for them learning how to read and they don't remember the struggle, but individuals who did struggle can tell you like, well, no, that doesn't, it's not quite how it works for everyone. 
And I think the, the right to read report and its recommendations highlights that, you know what, there is an approach to teaching reading that's going to work for the vast majority, you know, 95% of the students can learn to read with a structured literacy or a science of reading approach to teaching reading. And I think the report goes into how it's not just phonemic awareness instruction. It's not just phonics instruction. We need the vocabulary, the fluency, and the comprehension strategies in there. It highlights that morphological awareness is an important aspect of curriculum, and it really serves as a good outline for how to make these changes and what we need to remove for our current programs. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some criticism that the right to read is just too narrow in focus and focused on phonics only. And it's that's just not at all true. If you actually read the report, the whole thing, which is, you know, over 500 pages of report, it took me a while to get through it, but I have read the whole thing now. <laughs> there's lots of sections where they talk about all of the other aspects of literacy. And beyond that, it's really about systems, right? Even as much as it's about classroom instruction, it's about um, a framework really for ensuring that kids don't slip through the, the cracks and not just the dyslexic kids. It's also the kids with low language or the kids with other disabilities or the kids that are coming to school um, at socioeconomic disadvantage. It's about putting the mechanisms, the policies and the systems in place so that we're assessing kids to determine what their needs are when they enter the school system, that we're meeting them wherever their needs are and providing them with the instruction that they need to move forward, that we're monitoring their progress to make sure that that instruction is actually meeting their needs. And that when it's not, we're, we're making changes and that there's some sort of consistent framework for intervention that's happening. Because one of the things that we realized so quickly in our school system is that the intervention is completely haphazard, you know, and it, you know, some kids get it and some kids don't, and it depends on the school you're at and the attitudes of the principal and what the intervention is going to look like depends on perhaps the special education teacher. Um, even when your child's enrolled in a program, like we, we did get my child eventually enrolled in a program. He had to switch schools, but he was enrolled in a program. And the teacher didn't believe in the program. So she just didn't, she just didn't bother having the group meet. It was on her calendar, but by December of the year that he was enrolled, he'd only had 10 lessons the entire time, right? And that was on his IEP of having, having um, you know, and there was no accountability measure that, that we found that when we went to sort of say, well, okay, he's supposedly in this intervention program, where's the progress monitoring data? Like, how, how is he doing? If, if it's not working, what are we gonna do to change that? Um, and there were no systems in place for that. So as much as the Right to Read report is about curriculum and classroom instruction, I think the, the bigger picture of the report is really about systems and policies. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's the piece that I think is missing from the discussion when people are criticizing it as being narrow in focus. I see it as actually very broad in focus. Well, and it's important to highlight that how things currently are you're not having consistency between schools and between classrooms for the instruction that students are getting for reading. And I would argue that reading is one of the most important things that children can gain in their schooling. And it's one of the main reasons that schools were invented to give access to the general public to reading and mathematics. Well, 
if we're failing to do that, then why? Especially when, you know, if, if you're a parent going through the struggles of having a child who doesn't want to go to school because they feel stupid and they're being called out for, you know, struggling in the classroom and, you know, what are you supposed to say to them? Well, sorry, it's hard, but you have to go, right? It's not an easy conversation for a parent to have. And so we need to make sure that our students feel supported and that it's not going to depend on which classroom they land in. It's not going to depend on which area code they live in or, you know, what neighborhood. They're the mathematics instruction is very, very much aligned. You know, kindergarten kids are learning how to count to one to 20 and, you know, addition facts up to whatever, right? Well, we need to have our English language arts curriculum in the same fashion where in kindergarten, kids need to master blending and segmenting phonemes. They need to have the following phonics taught to them. So they need to know these letter sound correspondences. You know, A says af or apple. They need to learn about the common digraphs, right? A digraph is two letters that represent one sound, like the sound or the ch sound. I, I know there's one... Uh, example that, that's going around in one of the memes and one of the descriptions is you can't teach a kid to sound out the word the t h e well you know what it's not t h kids should learn that when they see that th together it's the or the v sound yeah and that can be done very early in in a scope and sequence which is the order in which we teach the letter sounds correspondences. So they're, they're not struggling. And you know what, if I teach them that TH says right, pretty early on, there are a huge number of words that they know and that they're going to be reading like with, then, the, then, there, weather. Like th these are words that are in that kindergarten vocabulary that they're going to come across in their reading. And in their everyday conversation, they're going to want to know the same is for CH, like much or chew, chip. So these are things that we need to have addressed in our curriculums so that a teacher doesn't have to guess what skills are going to be taught to these students. Yeah. What's going to expect to be mastered by the end of kindergarten, grade one, grade two, so that when the kids come from kindergarten into grade one, the teacher can still do their screening and look at the previous year's report, but they can have a basic assumption that these letter sound correspondences have been taught and they know where to move next. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're really hoping to see in the new curriculum in Ontario, which fortunately the government here did announce the day after the right to read was released that they are starting a new curriculum. So I'm very excited for that. Um, they did put out a new guide to instruction. It's, it's quite short, and, um, but it, it's definitely a step in the right direction. It mentions that you should be following a scope and sequence, but it doesn't actually provide a scope and sequence. Yeah. But we're hoping that there will be one going forward. 
But I think one thing that you said about like, what is the point of education if we're not teaching kids to read, like really brings me back to my big why, like, why do I do what I do? And I think it's because like the original promise of public education is that it's supposed to be the great social equalizer. Like that's how it was sold to the public. That's why we pay for it because it is supposed to be a place where everyone can go and sort of get off to a good start in life and then make what they want to of themselves. And at every turn in this process with my son, I discovered how unequal and how much of a two-tier education system we have in Ontario right now. You know, we had to provide uh, for a private psychoeducational assessment. So even to get him an IEP and to get him looked at at school, the first question at our first, you know, a special education meeting was, do you have benefits? Can you pay for a private assessment? And of course, we were able to do that. But the question that my husband and I both looked at them and just said, well, what if we said no? Are you saying that you wouldn't help our child learn to read? And there was just kind of blank stares back there. But they said, well, if, if you can get one, then we can get him ahead on the list and we can probably do more for him. So that was shocking, first of all, you know, and that, but then we brought the psych ed assessment back to the school and they looked at it and they said, oh, well, we, we can't really give him the structured literacy instruction, but we can give him a Chromebook that, that we can do. So then of course, you're now you're as a parent, again, looking outside of the public education system and, you know, we were able to provide him with reading instruction outside of the public education system. So our child is doing well and he did learn to read, but at the whole time in the entire process, it was just thinking like, this is ridiculous. This is not what public education is supposed to be. This is not the, a great social equalizer. This is just a perpetuator of intergenerational cycles of privilege. You know, it's our privilege that's allowed us to help our child so that he is a successful dyslexic kid. But if we didn't have that privilege, he would not be. And he would be one of the many, many, many kids in school who are struggling so much. And that's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> like I cannot live with that. So that's what really turned me into an advocate. Well, and it's important to highlight that, you know, 48% of the Canadian population is reading below a high school reading level. And that shouldn't be acceptable to anyone. And the amount that we're paying as taxpayers to deal with this low level of reading is enormous. We're looking at the mental health issues, the medical system, the corrections system. You know, there is a huge cost to low literacy. And we are in a country that has the ability to do better. And, you know, the story that you said about, you know, asking about this, you know, can you afford a psych ed? That's not unique to your situation. And, you know, many parents are told if they're dyslexic and they know you're lucky that your child has a parent like you who knows and understands and gets it. But what about all the kids who don't have parents that know what to ask? What about all those kids that have parents who are dyslexic, but never found out? and never had the support. So it's that vicious cycle of, again, that systematic discrimination that yeah, you know, it shouldn't be acceptable. And it doesn't have to be this way. Like that was the thing that as I was, as I was realizing these things, it was just opening my eyes to what was going on in Ontario education. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's been, honestly, um, there's been a bit of a cover up, frankly, 
in terms of how we're actually doing. Like we love to cherry pick statistics and put them in the news and make us feel fantastic about the education system. I know that when my son entered school, like that's the perspective I came in with, like Ontario's got the best education system in the world. Look at our PISA results. They're fantastic. Look at our EQAO results. They've gone up by 15% in the last, you know, 10 years. This is great. You know, this is, this is wonderful. Very proud. I'm a very patriotic person. Made me feel wonderful. But then once you actually get in and you see what's happening, you discover that there's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, you know? So I was asked to volunteer for the EQAO assessment at my son's school um, in 2019. That was the last year they actually ran EQAO, like spring of 2019 before the uh, pandemic. And I thought, like, what the heck do you want me to volunteer for? Like, I am not going to be a good scribe for anyone. I still can't spell anything. <laughs> like, you know, like, the children can certainly do better than me. But they, they said they really needed someone. So I went in because I always volunteer. And I got there and there was 12 kids in the library. And it's a very small school. There's maybe only 30, eh, maybe more than 35, but 40 kids in the school that would have been writing the test. And they were all writing the literacy test, like so the reading portion of EQAO uh, with headphones on, listening to the passages on Google Read and Write. And then we were writing down their answers for them for the writing part. And it was like, that's the reading and writing provincial assessment that we've been doing so well at that our, our scores have gone up. You know, so I started asking, like, how has this practice changed over time? Like, how is that affecting this perception that things have gotten better here in the last 15 years? Um, which is, it took me down another little rabbit hole, but we put out a report last fall with the results of that. And you can see when you separate those kids out that didn't actually, were not asked to read anything on the provincial reading assessment, we've had no progress in the last 15 years when it comes to literacy um, scores for kids in Ontario. And it's the same with PISA. If you start actually looking under the hood at who's being tested and who's not being tested and what those levels actually mean, it's really alarming. Like it's nothing that we should be standing up and celebrating in a country that is, you know, as affluent as Canada, that we have the resources, we have talented teachers who are committed and well-educated and it's well, and you know, I, I know that education, there's always a, is it well-resourced or not, but you know, it's, we could always use more resources, but relatively speaking, education in Canada is quite well-resourced. So you know, with what we have going for us, we should not accept the, the outcomes that we're getting. Yeah, that's definitely important. And one thing that I like to highlight, especially when we talk about assistive technology, which is a great resource, and I believe every dyslexic should have access to it. I'm not trying to say that it's a bad thing, but when schools give students these Chromebooks or iPads to help them, it's only for the years that they are in school. Once they graduate, it's up to them to get that assistive technology and the memberships uh, and the apps that are required. Now that is very financially costly. And if, the, if I believe that if schools are providing students with a Chromebook and the applications that they need to get around in school and finish high school, they should be providing them for life to the individual because they're saying, look, here, this is how you do it. And this is okay for you to get it done. But only while you're in high school, because once you're gone, you have to get it for yourself. Yeah, you're on your own. Absolutely. And I like, I 100% agree with you. Like I use tech all the time. <laughs> we were talking about audio yeah. before we started in this podcast. I absolutely support my son using tech in school for all sorts of testing. 
but there's two, two issues that I have with it. One is when it's offered instead of effective instruction and remediation, which was exactly how it was offered to him in school. Mm-hmm. I was told that they could provide him with a Chromebook and, and those subscriptions, but they did not have the resources to actually teach him to read. And we should just adjust our expectations, which of course we did not. Um, and then the other area that I have a a real problem with is when it's used to mask the problems. So on those standardized tests. So in Ontario, we have used technology essentially to convince the public that the education system is doing much better than it actually is at teaching children to read. And that has really taken the focus off of literacy. So one of the things that happened here in Ontario, um, at the same time that the reading scores were going up, the math scores were going down. And I, I fully believe, and there's a bit of research behind this, that the challenge that kids are having is with reading on the math test, right? So they're doing better on the calculation questions than they are on anything that has a word problem attached to it, right? Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, so because the math scores were going down, all of the PD funding and all of the special funding got um, put towards math in the last, you know, five or maybe even 10 years. And because the literacy scores were going up, you know, they decided to sort of like shift the focus and and the teachers have not really received a lot of literacy PD until this year with the right to read. Um, I would talk to teachers who'd say like they hadn't had any professional development for literacy in like 10 years, you know, because it'd been all math, 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 math. Um, And I think that the the entire point of those EQAO assessments are supposed to be to measure the curriculum and and this sort of thing. So that practice there um, really uh, did not serve its purpose of being something that was supposed to guide public policy. Like that's what EQA was supposed to do. And with that practice in place, like that's not in my mind an appropriate use of assistive technology, but I will fight tooth and nail for the right of any dyslexic student to use assistive tech in school, fear not. (laughs) Of course. Well, and I I think it's important to highlight, like, yes, we're talking about the problems that are occurring, you know, in those intermediate high school grades. But the important thing to note is we can, address this cheaply without having to financially invest a lot into our schools if we start it right from the beginning. So we do those pre-screening measures and do the progress monitoring measures to adjust our instruction based on the students' needs. Now, this just isn't based on research from other parts of the world. Dr. Linda Siegel has a study that she did in North Vancouver in British Columbia that had amazing results, and it has been referenced around the world for its success. This program was done with the teachers and the teachers were the ones that were implementing the interventions with the right support and access to the materials and the minimal professional development that they needed to get there. They saw dramatic changes across populations, including the English language learners and the first nation students within the classroom. I know of teachers you know, in small areas that, you know, they have students that have no reading at home, no books at home, poor language interactions at home, like they're not having that language literacy rich environment. But in kindergarten, they do the assessments, they do the interventions. And by the end of kindergarten, they have those students reading consonant, vowel, consonant words 
and they're getting success and they're excited because they're able to read books. So this isn't something that only works with, you know, first language affluent students. This is something that can work with a wide range of students from various language backgrounds and various economic backgrounds. In Dr. Siegel's research, the English language learners actually outperformed a lot of the English first language learners uh, after a couple of years. So it has been done and it can be done. Yeah, and that's the, the exciting part. Um, so again, like looking at this as a parent, as an outsider to the education system and seeing all of these, these issues and problems, like that's one thing mm -hmm. and it can be very overwhelming, but I did start to look at research like that. I started to look at Linda Siegel's research. And, um, when I went to that first IDA conference, like I actually went there because my son, and again, we, I wasn't a volunteer at this point. I was just uh, a parent that had used their resources and I had been building up my son and, and trying to build back his confidence and self-esteem. And we were both really digging into our dyslexia and, you know, he was, he was talking about it and he had uh, gotten it. He was in the newspaper with an article where he was doing a dyslexia awareness display at his school. So they gave him an award and we went to their conference and, you know, he sat there with me and we watched uh, Dr. Nadine Gab talk about the dyslexia paradox and lay out everything that you just said, you know, we can do early screening, we can put the interventions in place, we can change the curriculum, we can do all these things, and then students can avoid the reading difficulties altogether, a lot of them, right. Mm -hmm. And um, so just seeing that there was a solution there, right, like, to me, that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. to my son who was sitting next to me and he sat there for two hours of Dr. Nadine Gab when he was like 10 years old, which was really quite amazing. But he listened intently to the entire thing. And I remember afterwards, after he got his little award, he was actually really mad. And he sort of looked at me and he's just like, you mean to tell me that they could have figured this all out when I was in kindergarten? You could have go, why didn't you make them screen me? Like, why did you do those things with the letter cards when I was five instead of waiting until I was, you know, eight or whatever? And uh, and he was he was frustrated, genuinely angry, actually, and frustrated. It's kind of cute to look back on it now, but it was really heart-wrenching at the time. But you know, I, I had to apologize to him and say that I didn't really know um, anything about that before, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then it was him. He was just like, well, we need to tell everybody because we can fix this. Like he was so convinced that we could just go start telling people and that that would be enough and that they would, they would fix it. Right. Um, so it's a little bit naive, but as a, as an advocate, having such a clear solution with so much research behind it, Linda Siegel's obviously, um, Professor Giorgio at the University of Alberta as well. well. I was going to speak to that because we've seen that these results can even happen during COVID. And actually, I'm really excited because on April, sorry, August 18th, we've just nailed this all down. So like this is the first time that I'm publicly speaking about it. We're going to have a comprehensive approach to literacy symposium where he's going to come speak. One of the superintendents that he worked with is going to come speak one of his principals and one of his teachers. So we're going to all talk about this. Each of them is going to have their own presentation. And then we're going to have a, like a question and answer session to really help people. So I'm really excited about this because, you know, he's helped redesign the Alberta 
curriculum for English language arts. He's had these great results in small remote districts where they don't have the advantage of being in a big city where they have all the resources and all the professional development. And he's shown success with these students and really amazing results. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. And I think it's so important to bring in the teachers Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the teachers and the superintendents and the principals. Um, That'll be a really great opportunity. I look forward to attending that. (laughs) That'll be great. Yeah. And I think as well, like, that's the other piece, like bringing, bringing in the teachers is the other piece that once I started volunteering with IDA, I realized that like my son was absolutely right. We just need to tell people about this and then they're going to get excited about it too, because it is, it is such a, like a great opportunity. The solutions are clear and they're actually fairly straightforward. You just have to get that, that information out to people, but it's like, uh, it's really exciting. And I found the information and the research and digging into how reading works and all these things. I found it fascinating and I'm not even an educator, right? So, you know, you can see how excited and enthusiastic the teachers get. Um, But like when I was saying before, like, you know, nothing for us without us in terms of, you know, the dyslexia community, I kind of feel like education has become that for teachers too, right? So you have these people like way removed from the actual classroom that are the ones that have been creating policies and, you know, like Michael Fullen and and the people that are way up there. Like, I want to know when was the last time that you actually went into a kindergarten classroom and tried to teach kids the alphabet. Like I just want to know because it just seems so far removed from the experiences of teachers. So in the time that I've been volunteering with IDA, IDA has always been really committed to helping to empower teachers to connect with the knowledge, but we've really dug into that. And it's just so exciting to see the enthusiasm of the teachers as they start to connect with this learning because they love it, right? And so I think they really need to be a part of the solution going forward as well. So I'm really glad to hear that you've got teachers coming to that um, to that uh, uh, symposium or workshop or whatever you called it. <laughs> That'll be great. Well, and the important thing is we need to have the professional development education made across levels. So, you know, there are so many teachers that have been the brave grassroots movements of their schools. I mean, on this podcast, I've spoken to several teachers about their journey to the science of reading and then looking at what they do in their classroom. And these teachers are amazing and skilled. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to someone that just started last summer learning about it and then she implemented it in her classroom and she loves the results. She couldn't possibly think of going back to what she was doing before. And but she's the lone wolf in her school. And I really like how one of the recommendations in the report is to make sure that there's no negative impact on teachers that are doing this on their own and speaking out about it and saying, look, this is what I'm doing in my classroom and it's having amazing results. I agree. I just, I found it so shocking when I started getting into this, that that was necessary to include as a recommendation. Like it was necessary. Absolutely. But the fact that it was necessary is something that really should make everyone take pause and really consider like, what is the culture that we have created here within education that, you know, the, the frontline workers, the people that are in the classrooms that are doing the work, don't feel free to share their learning and don't feel empowered to try new things and to actually, you know, dig into research and, and, and go out and beyond. Like 
you know, my understanding is that, you know, the teaching unions and whatnot have really fought for professional judgment for teachers over the last two decades. And I completely support that. But how can you say that teachers don't have the have professional judgment and if they're not able to, as professionals, look at the research in their field and incorporate that into their classroom practice and feel like that's okay, you know? So you're only paying lip service to professional judgment if you're not allowing teachers to do that or you're not supporting them and making them feel like it's okay to do that. And I've had so many conversations with teachers who really have faced negative consequences for asking questions, for at a staff meeting, whether, you know, even this year after the right to read still going through training where they're learning about how to do running records or whatever, and somebody will put their hand up and ask, and then there's, there's negative repercussions for them. Um, you know, and that's just ridiculous and wrong. And I think that that's, um, something that the right to read really exposed in education. And I hope that we will have these conversations and that there'll be a bit of a culture shift there so that teachers, frontline teachers are feeling empowered and are given the professional judgment that they should have so that they can ask those questions and, you know, make those decisions and, uh, and feel supported when they do that. Right. Now, some of the recommendations talked about removing certain materials from classrooms and stopping the purchasing of new materials following certain guidelines. Do you feel that those are actually being listened to or being ignored? I know when I've spoken to people at the, you know, at the districts, they're saying, well, it's important that we still have these things in the classroom for teachers to use. And there is that pushback to remove the looking at pictures and guessing for reading words, are you experiencing that same thing? So it really, it really depends on the school board. So there are a number of school boards that have really welcomed the right to read with open arms. Mm -hmm. And that's been awesome. And they, you know what, they were looking at these issues before the report came out in February, you know, Mm -hmm. this report should not be a surprise to any school board because the, you know, the inquiry started in 2018. The terms of reference were very clear and they were publicly available. The letters that were sent out to the eight school boards that they audited as a part of the inquiry process were also very clear in terms of what the OHRC wanted to see. So if any school board was paying attention from 2019 until February, um, they should have seen the writing on the wall and they really should have stopped purchasing those things a while ago. And there are some school boards um, like Algonquin and Lakeshore Catholic. I love to give them a, a shout out who really did look at this ahead of time and have already started to make those changes. And there are other, there are other standout school boards too, um, for sure. But there are a number of school boards who really did not want to look at this at all. Like we were approaching them since 2019 saying, Hey, this is going on. We'd love to talk to you and, and help you proactively prepare for what you can expect to come out of this report. Um, and what we imagine is coming down the pipe and, you know, the OHRC did a good job throughout the inquiry of communicating what they were doing and giving updates and all sorts of things. So at many different points, you know, we reached out to different school boards asking if they wanted to find out what's happening in those school boards that are being proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say it's it's a hodgepodge at this point. There are some boards that absolutely have stopped purchasing, you know, decodable books and they're not spending it's any more. Do you mean start pushing decodable and stop? Oh, sorry. Yes. Started. Yes. Stopped with levels, started with decodable. Yes, thank you for correcting me. They have stopped with FNP and, and, and these sorts of things, and they're looking at different different things. But 
There are other school boards that absolutely not, like there's some of the big school boards too, that are really not at this point um, doing much of anything and seems actively resisting the right to read inquiry recommendations, which is really sad to see. Um, well, and I think I, it's, gonna, it's gonna take the, they're, they're gonna wait until the new curriculum is published, I think. And then my prediction is that even though the ministry put out this guide that is like a signpost document to tell school boards, like here's what's coming down the pipe in that curriculum, um, they're writing the curriculum this year. We're probably not going to see it until about next year this time. And then it comes into effect in September of 2023. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that there are going to be some school boards that are going to do nothing to get ready. And then they're going to complain when they get the curriculum and they're going to say they're not ready. And, mm -hmm. you know, they won't be ready because they're still pushing the old resources. So that's really sad. Um, if anybody is, is watching that's from Ontario, we have a list of questions on our website that we're asking parents and advocates to take to their school board, take it to your trustees, take it to your director of education and ask like, what are you doing to prepare to uh, prepare for the new curriculum? And what are you doing to respond to the right to read? And I think it's really gonna take that consistent advocacy from um, community members, parents, teachers, everybody really to hold them to account and get things done. Definitely. Well, I think the important thing to highlight is yes, purchasing these new decodable books is expensive, but it's just as expensive as purchasing those uh, leveled texts and the different programs that are still being purchased and paid for. So it's not trying to allot new funds, it's just replacing what you're spending your funds on, which is really important because teachers need these tools. And we're not saying you have to throw out every single leveled text in your classroom. Um, Dr. Pam Kastner had a great guest on from the Patent Network talking about how they went through their leveled texts and reorganized their book room and were able to still use some of these texts uh, and, and theme packs. And, you know, once kids are reading, they can look at these books. It's not like you have to throw them all out. They are still ones that you can use. It's just using them appropriately in your classroom and assessing your students' knowledge and addressing their needs as yeah. based on the students in your class. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that the bigger thing really that we need for the government to fund and school boards to fund right now isn't so much the decodable books, though we do need those. It's teacher training. Like that's got to be the big push right now, you know, and, and that is, um, you know, like I think in the long run, switching yeah. to everything in the right to read report is not going to cost us more money. It will probably actually save us some money. But in the immediate term to get there, we do need an in, in big influx of funding because we need to provide really good in-service training for our teachers that are in the classroom already mm -hmm. with coaching. Like it can't just be, here's some webinars, go watch them on your own. Like they need ongoing support and coaching because it's a big, it is a lot to learn and it's a big change. So we need that. And then we also need to, to not forget about all the kids that were failed already. Like we have this generation of kids that are in the education system and lots that are actually past the education system that I think we need to put in place more funding for good community programs to help um, adults that are struggling with low literacy as well and make sure that they actually get effective instruction and can get up to speed. Uh, but for all the students that are in older grades and in high school, um, 
we need to give them really good remediation in school. And that's going to cost a, a fair bit of money at this point because there's just so many of them, right? Uh, but it can be done if we put the programs in place and, and we decide to fund that, we can do it and we can um, help them fill in the gaps so that when they do leave high school, they're, they're going to be able to access any career path or educational pathway that they choose. Um, and right now there are so many kids that are really not able to do that. You know, the number of conversations that I've had with parents of high school students who are like not able to pass their driver's test because they can't read the test form. Like that's just heartbreaking when I have those conversations. So we can't forget about those kids. We need to do that too. But I really think that teacher training for elementary is where we need to go. And then putting, putting more resources towards intervention programs for older students. Well, at least in Ontario, this new curriculum is a year out. And when we look at the research, it takes between three and five years to transition from a balanced literacy program to a structured literacy program. The best thing that could be done is investing in that quality professional development for the classroom teachers, for the reading specialists, for the principals, and the external uh, employees within the school district, looking at the occupational therapists and the role that they can have, looking at the SLPs and the role that they can have. And again, there are some great people already within you know, the education system that really understand this and take advantage of their knowledge or not take advantage, but use their knowledge to help everyone do better. Because we're not trying to single out or pick out one person. We're trying to say, let's make this better for everyone. And, you know, teachers have a higher level of job satisfaction when they're able to, to reach the needs of all of their students. Anyone who has worked with a child that's a struggling reader or even a beginning reader and that light bulb goes off, that feeling that you get is amazing. And those aha moments make all the extra hard work worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's, it's that professional development piece. You're so right. It's got to start there and not just for teachers, as you said, for the literacy consultants and the principals and those people as well. Um, so at IDA, we have been working on that for the last couple of years. And we, we ran last year and, and actually the year before we did a pilot group, um, an introduction to structured literacy course that lasted from September until June. And we had a cohort of last year, we had, I think, 270 teachers that went through it, but a lot of them were literacy consultants, which was really nice to see. So there are a few school boards that actually contacted us and sent us, you know, a group of their uh, literacy consultants to go through that program. And the idea was really for them that, you know, you go through this, you get the training and then you go back and then you do it with all of your teachers. So that course, we, um, we used the Reading Teachers Top 10 Tools, Doug Glazier's course as the core of that and then we had teachers that we knew that had that knowledge as you said like there are lots of people that have that knowledge uh, and we used them as um, they were our coaches and mentors so they were meeting with the the people as they worked through that self-paced online course all year mm -hmm. um, so we're doing that again this year it's already full again <laughs> it filled up unfortunately like we were able to hire some more coaches this year so we could offer more spots than the 270 i think I'm not sure how many we're up to. I think we're up to maybe 480 or 490 teachers that are going to do it together this year. Mm -hmm. um, but it was amazing how quickly it filled up. So there's a huge demand for that. 
Um, but it's just to say, if, if a bunch of volunteers like us can organize that and get that going, like surely a school board could do the same thing for their own teachers. Like it's, um, it's pretty cost effective. It's not um, super expensive training and uh, it's, it's doable at scale. And I would say actually the Ottawa Carleton School Board is doing that same thing. So, you know, there is a school board in Ontario that's doing it. So it is possible within the current funding envelope. Um, Ottawa Carleton had um, an initial group of literacy consultants that did the top 10 tools course when we were doing our pilot mm -hmm. in 2019. So they're one of the boards that has been a very proactive in getting ready for the findings of the right treat. And then they brought in a cohort of, I can't remember, but I feel it was over 300 kindergarten and grade one teachers did that course together. Um, I think they're finished it now. They did it this year together. Um, and I hope that they'll continue to do that. But um, so it is possible to do that large scale training because there are these courses that exist, right? And there's a model that's already, um, that works. You know, <laughs> you can just do that as a school board. So yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And that's, that's how we need to do it and get that group momentum and buy-in. Right. Uh, so that, you know, you have that common language and you can talk to your colleagues within your school about the learning that you're doing and seeing and supporting each other on their process. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the best when we see an entire school sort of sign up for this training. So I'm really excited because we do have like a number of groups that it's it's clearly most of the elementary staff at a school or something like that, because we'll have. Um, you know, a school with 11 teachers that all sign up together. So that's really nice to see. Because once you get enough teachers in the building that are doing it, like I've talked to um, teachers in schools where their whole school team really is really coming together around this learning. Mm -hmm. So like you said before, like it improves their sense of job satisfaction, because they can see that they're helping the students. But it's also improving their job satisfaction in terms of making them feel more connected to their colleagues and making them feel like they're part of a team when you're in a school where you have a whole bunch of teachers that are doing this learning together. Mm -hmm. um, so this was like, you know, everyone said it was the worst year for being a teacher ever because of the pandemic disruptions and all the different things that were going on. Um, but I would be talking to these teachers that were having these book clubs with all the teachers in their school and you would never know it. <laughs> like these were happy teachers. They were excited about their learning. They were sharing on Facebook all the lessons they're doing with the kids well, and all on, on Thursday. Out, right? On Thursday, I'm speaking with Kim Lockhart, who's one of the Ontario teachers that's really public about this journey that she's on. And we're going to be talking about her, you know, favorite books, favorite podcasts, and favorite articles for teachers just starting out on this journey. And I'm definitely looking forward to that conversation. And yeah. also earlier in the day, you and I are speaking again about what's actually um, making the change in the school districts. And I think we've kind of alluded to some of those things today, but we'll go into them in more detail on Thursday. Excellent. Yeah. I, I look forward to hearing your podcast with Kim as well. Kim is fantastic. And I'm excited to announce that as of Sunday, Kim has actually joined the board of directors of IDA Ontario. Oh, we, had, uh, we had four new directors join and she is one of our new ones. So we're super happy to have her. 
Congratulations. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And for all of those listening, please make sure that you like and follow the Right to Read initiative and uh, follow us on whatever podcast uh, system that you use. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you.